This is really interesting. The sovereignty of God happens, right? All the time, but I found it sort of funny this morning. So we're going through a series in the Gospel of John, and we're not like stopping at any particular holiday to have side, you know, lessons or whatever. We're just, we're going right through John's entire Gospel. Today, Jesus' mom comes on the scene. You can't, you can't make that stuff up. Jesus' mom walks into the scene, and of course, it's, it's Jesus' first public miracle where he turns water into wine at a wedding. Uh, you may be familiar with that story. And uh, I think sometimes the, um, the significance of the story of his mom's role is a little bit undervalued. Because what we're going to see is uh, she basically forces him to go public with his ministry uh, with, in a way that kind of only your mom really could do. Because sometimes mama bear's got to give the cubs a little nudge, you know what I mean? And, uh, and Jesus' mom does that very thing, actually, in his life, which is really funny. So, you know, if you've ever been sort of slow to act on some of your life goals or dreams, don't worry about it. Jesus' mom had to give him a nudge, too. And if you're a mom wondering, should I kick my 27-year-old millennial out? Maybe the answer is yes. I don't know. You've got to decide that. Uh, but, but Jesus' mom gave him a shove, so I'm going I'm to give you permission to do what you need to do, because you're the mom, and I certainly wouldn't second-guess it. Uh, so we're going to be in John chapter 2, and we'll start in verse 1. So if you've got your John journal handy, and I see several of you have your fake digital Bibles handy, good, good. Uh, it might be a good idea to just turn to the first blank page in your, in your journal if you're taking notes, and maybe just write down the verses that we're covering. Um, if you don't have one and you want one, I promise not to mock you for jumping up and grabbing one in the back. Um, if you need a heading for this, you could go with, Jesus turns water into wine, or water into wine. Uh, might help you... Hope you keep it organized. So I'm just going to read the story, and, uh, and then we'll talk about a few things. This is what it says in verse 1. It says, on the third day, uh, so you remember last week Jesus called his first disciples, and they've traveled three days to get to this wedding. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? It reads like, woman? <laughs> we'll get to that. Jesus replied, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood stick, six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washings, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Uh, there are all kinds of things in there. I'd encourage you to listen to this week's John cast. There'll be something that's totally unrelated to today's conversation. Uh, but there's all kinds of stuff. So I want you to do something interesting on your, on your journal. I want you to write one word, and then when I, write, when I tell you the word, I want you to write the word and then make a note of your immediate emotional reaction. 
what kind of reaction you have to this word. Just make a quick note of that. The word is dun, 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 alcohol. <laughs> See, everyone has a reaction. Uh, it could be all over the place, all kinds of different reactions. But what is like the primary kind of prevailing emotion uh, that you have? Now, I just want to be clear. This story is not about alcohol. Just, just to be clear, uh, I'm certain that someone has taken the story and tried to make a point out of it. I think you can deduce some things, but it's not the big idea of this particular situation. Uh, but if you're going through life in our society, which as it turns out all of us are, you have to do something with alcohol. You have to decide what it, what it means to you, what your interaction, what your attitude with it will be. We all have to make decisions. So I just thought, you know, I would just take this opportunity to, uh, to have a little family discussion. And it's interesting because some of you are way more dialed in right now than you've ever been on any Sunday morning ever. <laughs> so good. So we just need to start with controversy. That's the key. Uh, I think as it pertains to alcohol, there's really three things that you, you have to account for. The first one is the civic law. This is a pretty easy one, right? For um, for some of us, our attitude toward the word alcohol is like, two thumbs up, bring it on, more is better. My experience has been that the only people who really feel that way generally are people who either have a problem or are on their way to a problem and just don't know yet. Uh, I remember once when I, I had, this, had this job where I worked with a bunch of guys kind of around my age, we were like in our early 20s, and there was this older guy, uh, at least he was older to us back then, he was like maybe 50, uh, so he seemed old to us then, right, because when you're 20, you just don't know what you don't know. And, uh, and he was a recovering alcoholic. He'd been, he'd been sober for like a decade at this point. So, uh, but it had been a significant problem for him in the past. And so the group of younger guys, you know, of course, they're talking about like who can drink how much. And, you know, and, and one of them said, well, so-and-so can drink an entire case of beer in one night. And this older guy's like, okay. He pumps the brakes a little bit. He's like, if you can drink an entire case of beer in one sitting, I'm going to go out on a limb and say you might have a problem. And so-and-so looks up and says... I got no problem with drinking. He did, he just didn't know it yet at that point. I'm sure he's figured it out by now that we're 15 years down the road. My guess is very few of us have that reaction, like bring it on, more is better. Uh, but there's also another side of the spectrum, right? There's a side of the spectrum that says something like, uh, your immediate reaction is all negative. Uh, maybe it's like, maybe it's as far as it's evil and sinful to even like think about the word alcohol so you intentionally misspelled it. Uh, or maybe, maybe it's all negative for you because you just had a bad experience, right? Maybe, maybe some wounds in the past. So, so you can kind of get to either one. And then, of course, there's a whole gamut all the way across the spectrum in between. Uh, maybe you feel like, you know, it's not necessarily inherently bad or evil or anything like that, but for a variety of reasons, I just choose not to consume. Or maybe you're just mostly neutral, or maybe you do consume in moderation. Uh, there's, there's all kinds of positions you can have. The Bible has a ton to say about it. We're not going to exhaust it uh, today. Uh, I, just, I just want to uh, take the opportunity to just say a couple of things. Uh, something you might want to write down is, what stands out to you in this situation about the prevailing attitude? Whatever that might be. could be different for all of us. So let me just start here. Romans 13 verse 1 says, let everyone be subject, let everyone everyone be subject to governing authorities. Let everyone be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. If there's an authority, God has established it. 
uh, even if they are a jerk. That's a, you know, that, that part's relative, but... So based on that, consuming alcohol below the age of... Okay, just wanted to make sure that you're reeled in there. Uh, in our country, if God's rule is, um, if God has clearly made this mandate, respect the authorities, respect the law, uh, consuming alcohol under the age of 21 in our society puts a person in opposition to God's mandate. Now, that part's really black and white. If only everything in the Bible was like that, that's simple and clear. It reminds me of a certain scene in the movie Liar, Liar. Don't break the law, right? You know the one. I can't really, like, go into full detail. Uh, if we consume alcohol illegally, then whether we've drank too much, whether we're drunk or whatever your view on that is, uh, if we do it illegally, then we're in opposition to what God has instructed us. That one's, that one's pretty easy. Uh, God's never really interested in our rebellion, at least not in a good way. In 1 Samuel 15, God actually compares rebellion to the sin of witchcraft, which has always been kind of a weird one for me. Like, I'm not even 100% clear, like, exactly, uh, you know, what that could possibly look like in the parallel. Uh, but at a bare minimum, God's expectation for his kids is that we will be honorable citizens above reproach. I think we can all get on board with that. So you got to deal with the civic law. That one's pretty clear. And we have, this, um, we have this, this interesting culture in America because up until the 20th century, Christians interacted with alcohol totally different in a, in a completely different way than we do today, than we have in the last 100 years. Historically speaking, people didn't go to bars to drown their sorrows in alcohol and ignore their reality. That, that wasn't... That wasn't like historically a norm, a cultural norm. Uh, but today, bars have become a place where a lot of Americans, not all, uh, but a lot of them go to get drunk and hook up. Uh, it doesn't take much of a moral compass to identify that as maybe not the best idea, right? I think, I think we can all cross that bridge pretty easily. Uh, historically, what alcohol would have been used for, uh, wine specifically, was uh, celebrations, feasts, and yes, communion. Even communion. Uh, I know, for some of us, that's, that's sensitive. But what happened in the 20th century in America, uh, if you studied 20th century history, like the late 1800s and, and through the 1900s, a variety of factors, including the Great Depression, uh, was one of them. Uh, in our society, just created a lot of press, pressure, a lot of stress. And men, specifically more than women, began to abuse alcohol profusely. Now, some of you maybe have a family history in this area, and you're like, yeah, you, you don't have to tell me about it. Uh, it's still having the effects, its effects on my family. But it led to a variety of social problems, abuses, uh, even economic problems, kind of the, the erosion of the family structure. And the result was, what we did as a society was we said, okay, well, let's ban it, all right? Because if it's, if it's not working, like if, if someone drank too much and got in a car crash, we should definitely ban cars. Uh, that was sort of the knee-jerk reaction we went to. Well, it's causing these problems, so let's just ban it. And so prohibition happened, uh, but also there was something else that happened, a different type of prohibition that happened within the church. Now, uh, our federal government eventually repealed prohibition, but it became very religiously taboo uh, to consume alcohol in, in the church. That was kind of the attitude. So my question is, if consumption of alcohol is causing widespread corruption and abuses and destruction and things like infidelity and even bankruptcy for people and uh, just general destruction, 
Does it make sense to steer clear of it? Yes. Yes and amen. If it's causing problems, by all means, steer clear of it. But my experience has also been legislating morality almost never works. It just creates a whole new set of problems, right? Because you say the rule, don't do that, and guess what the first thing most of us want to do is? It calls attention to it. Uh, I would just say to a person, listen, if alcohol has the potential of turning your life into a dumpster fire, by all means, restrict yourself from consuming it. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. That's a great idea. It makes sense. So what happened during Prohibition was a guy named Thomas Welch, uh, probably rings a bell, even if you have no idea who he is, you probably see who we're, where we're going, he invented grape juice. Now, I would have thought grape juice would have been invented a long time before that. I'm sort of skeptical as to whether or not he actually invented it, but he popularized it. Uh, so that, this is kind of interesting, he, he created this grape juice and began selling it so that there would be a legal way to observe communion in churches. Uh, and so the reason we have, we have grape juice when we observe communion here, and the reason is uh, we apparently are just like the byproduct of his marketing scheme uh, because <laughs> a lot of streams of Christianity went back to using wine. But before that, virtually all of them did. Uh, it, was, it was normative, including Jesus. Even at the Last Supper, even Jesus did. So I guess probably the high-level point I would make is that the Bible does not demand abstinence from alcohol. Uh, you can look for it, but it's not there. Do I think it's a good idea? If you feel like in your circumstance, you know, this might not be the best thing for me. Do I think it's a good idea to abstain? Yeah, I think it's a good idea. Uh, just like I should probably abstain from overeating this afternoon, but we'll see how it goes. Uh, we don't see Jesus consume in this story, but he did create it and then pass it off to people. I mean, that's about as close of an endorsement as he could give without actually throwing it down. So here's what the Bible does say about alcohol. I'll just point out a couple verses. There are many. Galatians 5, verses 19 and 21. Uh, it's a section where Paul is comparing godly living to uh, fleshly or ungodly living. He says, the acts of the flesh are obvious, like so obvious that you don't even need a list. And then he goes on to make a list, which is kind of funny. <laughs> the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, Fits of rage, God bless you, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Here's what I find interesting about that list. Uh, it doesn't take a strong moral compass to sort of identify those things as out of bounds as far as God is concerned, but drunkenness is the perfect gateway to everything else on that list. You notice that? Uh, now, drunkenness doesn't necessarily lead to all of those things, uh, but it certainly could till the soil for the other things on that list. Ephesians 5, 6 says, uh, if you need it like really spelled out, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Don't be filled with spirits. Filled with the Spirit. I, don't know, I, know, I shouldn't have said that. That was dumb. <laughs> In other words, don't, don't be drunk and let your mind be cloudy and, and sort of guided along by uh, fuzz, uh, but rather be filled with God's spirit so that you can be guided along by his heart and his wisdom. That's the Bible's instruction. It has a lot of other things to say about it. Uh, what I want to do is just tell you where I'm at in my own life, not so that you'll do what I do, uh, 
Um, but so that you'll maybe understand what my process is, and then um, if you need to think that through, a lot of you already have resolution in this area, um, you know, maybe that will, will help you a little bit. Jesus made it clear that he has fulfilled God's law on our behalf, so that by faith in him, we receive righteousness before God. And uh, I tell you what, that is a really incredible thing, because it means that we're not crushed by the weight of God's rules. We're not, we're not going around um, sort of watching and waiting to make sure that we never screw up because then we'll be outside of God's graces. Jesus has settled that for, it, for us. Because of this, it really does come down to the heart, not the external actions, uh, which I'm very thankful for. Uh, however, I think my outward actions are probably the best way to gauge what's going on in my heart. I think there's sort of an inevitable reality there. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23 says... I am allowed to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. Some translations would say, all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. In other words, in context, uh, as long as something is not in clear opposition to God's instruction and character, then I'm really free to do what I please within the boundaries that God has established for my protection. He's, he's given us freedom. Um, this is true of alcohol. There's not direct prohibition in the Bible. However, there's also a reality that alcohol will not make you smarter, it will not make you holier, it will not make you wiser, it will not make you more controlled, it will not improve your decision-making ability in any way. If you're the exception to that, I would love to hear your story, uh, but I'm, I'm yet to see one. Okay? I, I realize that. It's not going to improve any of those things. The only potential impact it could have on my life in those areas is degradation, going the other direction, decreasing my wisdom, decreasing my self-control, decreasing my decision-making ability. So I personally abstain from alcohol entirely for several reasons, but there's really two primary reasons. And uh, I think maybe for, if you have resolution on this issue, it, it probably isn't a big deal. Uh, we're going to move on in just a second. But if you're at a stage of life where you're still working through it, I just want to tell you why I'm at where I'm at. Um, the first of two reasons is that I adore my wife. I love the life that Brandy and I have together. I want to do this for as long as humanly possible. I love the mutual friends that we have, the other families that we're close to, and anything that could even pose the slightest potential, most minute danger to that, I want it as far away from me as possible. Because the life God has blessed me with is the one that I want. And so um, I'm super thankful for that. I don't want to ever do anything that could potentially interfere with that. And I know for some people, uh, maybe in your dynamic, your household, uh, alcohol is part of that and it doesn't pose a threat to you. Uh, what I can say is after 15 years of being a pastor, um, I have seen it wipe out many, many families, even ones that I would have never suspected that it would happen. And so for me, I'm keeping it at arm's length and whatever is past that. Uh, it's, it's, I want it far away from me. The second one is, uh, this has kind of always been my, my compass, is it's just not who I am. It's just, not, it's just not part of my character. Abstinence has been my personal rule. It's not a biblical mandate. It's my personal mandate. It's the one that, that I hold for myself. Uh, it doesn't have to be yours. It's mine. I choose to abstain because I don't see a way that it can benefit me. Um, I only see a way that in my circumstance... Uh, it could be damaging. Now, it's easy for me to say because it's not a temptation, right? The temptation for me to drink alcohol is roughly equivalent to the temptation for me to eat this stand, okay? <laughs> it's, 
it's not a big deal for me. might be different for you. Uh, if it had been part of my upbringing, maybe I would feel differently about it. Uh, I've, never seen, I've never seen anyone blow up their life in one night because they spent too much time not drinking beer. Uh, now, I've seen sober people act like idiots, but that's not because they didn't drink like beer. It's because they were idiots. In fact, I've been one. Okay, okay, me too. Right? I've done dumb things. Uh, I'm just saying I don't need to speed up the process, right? Uh, so for me, alcohol is permissible, but, it, but it's not beneficial. Now, that's where I'm at in my own self-governance. Now, the question is, do I think it could be beneficial? I know of a couple, and old, they're much older than I am, and for decades, they have spent every Friday night, they shut out the world, they turn on their radio, they pour a glass of wine, and they make an elaborate meal, and they have dinner together, and they spend the entire evening, and this is, this is their night, and it's very, very significant to them in their relationship. So is it possible that it could be beneficial? I think you could make that argument. Uh, I fail to see how it could be beneficial for me in my life. Uh, but I think you could make that argument. I'm not pushing you one way or another. This is what I'm really asking you to do. Think objectively about whether or not it's a benefit to you, and then act accordingly. You have freedom within the fences, the boundaries that God has established for our protection. I personally have chosen to move those in, but you have freedom in this area. And I'm asking you, consider whether or not it's beneficial, and then live accordingly. The biblical mandate is sobriety. Uh, I wish there was a clear-cut line at where that ends and whatever's after that drunkenness begins. Uh, I don't know where that is, but I do know if I get on the other side of that line, then I'm in opposition to what God has instructed. So there's a lot more to say uh, for that. I just know that for some of us uh, who maybe haven't uh, really drawn a line or maybe you're experiencing changes in your life, you know, you, you spend your upbringing living with your parents, and then you're on your own, and then you get married, and then you have kids, and life changes, and, and those boundaries might flux for you. Uh, consider whether or not it's beneficial. All right. So let's just look really quickly at what happens uh, at this wedding. Weddings are fun. Weddings are exciting. Uh, if you're a super introvert, you probably don't get too amped up about going to a wedding. Uh, my experience has been that uh, when I'm not the pastor or participating in the wedding, uh, I'm not super excited to go, but then once I'm there, I have a good time. That's kind of been my experience. They're supposed to be fun, and generally, they are for most of us. Uh, I would love to just go through like, a timeline of you of what it's like to be a pastor in regard to a wedding, because I think you would find it really laughable. Um, it's a good experience. I, in general, I like it, but man, it's a lot of work. Uh, aside from all the like, preparation stuff, here's the one thing that I find really funny. It makes me sort of chuckle to myself uh, every time and like roll my eyes inside. About four out of five weddings, this is what happens. Um, all the legwork is done leading up to it. You get to the rehearsal, okay? Say it's a Saturday wedding, Friday night is the rehearsal. Um, half the people are late, but everybody's having a good time. You know, it's all fun, everybody's goofing around. It's fun, it's great, it's a great environment. Like an hour or so after it's supposed to start, I'm looking around going, okay, um, I don't think anyone's in charge here or anyone has any idea where to stand or where to go or what to do right now. And then I become the de facto wedding coordinator. <laughs> that, that happens like way more often than not. Not a big deal, but I, there's a whole bunch of things like that that I think you would find super laughable. But this wedding, Jesus is a guest at this particular wedding. How cool is that? Uh, the first thing I think is, man, I hope they had a guest book. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I can only imagine what that would get, what that would draw on eBay. Um, 
My guess is they probably didn't, uh, but that's a serious like, celebrity guest list to have Jesus and the disciples there. Uh, Mary, I mean, especially if you're Catholic, like, wow, Mary was there. Uh, God physically came to their wedding in the flesh. That's amazing stuff right there. So Jesus shows up at this wedding. Festivity, there's wine. Um, This is why religious people don't understand Jesus very well. Because in the Gospels, what what do we see people's attitude toward Jesus is? There's a party. Do they want Jesus there? Yes, come. Come to our party. There's a wedding. Come to our wedding. I have children. Hold my baby. People like Jesus. They want him around. There's only one group of people that don't like Jesus as you read the Gospels. And who are they? They're the religious people. Because they liked it when it was quiet and tidy. Um, I, look, I like quiet. I like tidy. I just don't want to be on like, the wrong side of this particular issue. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I want Jesus to feel invited into my world and into the things that I do. Uh, that might just be something you know to kind of like pray about in, in your own personal life. Because I realize if you've been a long-time Christian, as I have, uh, you and I are in far more danger of becoming like the religious people, the Pharisees, than we are in danger of becoming like the sinners and tax collectors. Uh, We're much closer to the other people, so, you know, something to keep your finger on the pulse of, keep keep an eye out. Uh, So that's just some food for thought. So Jesus shows up with his posse, and the wine runs out, and he has what I think, as I sort of see it play out in my mind, is just a hilarious interaction with his mom, with Mary. Uh, In their culture, running out of wine is a big problem. Like, um, at my wedding, there was no wine, and I don't even like the stuff, so no big deal. Not a big deal. But in their culture, it's, it's a problem, but even more than that, it's an embarrassment because it's an expectation. Uh, so Jesus' mother freaks out, and she comes to him in verse 3, and she says, they have no more wine. And Jesus responds in a manner that reads really funny in English. Woman, why do you involve me? Why are you telling me? Why are you bothering me with this? Uh, there's, there's like... At least a half a dozen husbands who just got themselves a new life verse. <laughs> uh, this, will be, this will be rolling off the tongue in a household near you very soon, I'm sure. <laughs> I don't know what else to do with that. Uh, here's what's funny about it. I, I read that, and it sounds funny. It, it's funny. So I looked it up in Greek. I'm not a Greek scholar, but I do know how to use the tools that were created by scholars. Uh, scholars, and the word woman is the Greek word gune, uh, and it means woman. There was no way around it for me. Like, it's, <laughs> it means woman. Uh, I, I tried to, like, figure out what that is. It like, uh, you know, anyway, in their culture, it would have been much more uh, a term of respect. Uh, you could probably think of it more like the word ma'am, actually, uh, would probably be well, the closest word in our language that I could, that I could think of. Uh, you know, in, in their time, uh, referring to someone this way would have been respectful. You know, we're very sensitive to these kinds of things in our culture, uh, regardless of how you feel about that. I think we're all aware of the fact that political correctness is really important. Sometimes we walk on eggshells. That wasn't really an issue for them. Uh, just know that for them, it's, uh, it's a little bit more of a, uh, of a term of endearment or respect than it would be for us. So you've got to appreciate what happens here, though. Mary comes to Jesus and she says, Jesus, there's no more wine. Do something. And he says, well, why are you telling me? I wasn't really planning on revealing myself to be the savior of the world by doing a chore for my mom, <laughs> which, which is understandable. That's like, 
It's not like word for word. Uh, I may have paraphrased that. Um, but he says, woman, why, why are you to involve me? My time has not come. Okay, so he's basically saying, no, no, stop, mom, mom, no. And what she does next just cracks me up. He says no, right? Jesus, we're out of wine. No, mom, don't bother me. Okay, you guys, do what he says. He's going to get us more wine. She completely ignores what he says. Um, so if you're, like, if you're in your 30s and you're like, when's my mom ever going to stop treating me like a child? Never. It's not going to happen. Jesus' mom did the same thing, so it's okay. If you're a mom and you have grown children, you're off the hook. You don't have to stop treating them like children because Jesus' mom didn't do it either. Uh, it's pretty... It's pretty crazy. Uh, she just turns to the servants as if he didn't say no, as if he said nothing at all. Come, do what he's ever going gonna, to do whatever he tells you. So here's the dilemma that we run into. This bride's perfect day, her wedding, is about to go bad because the wedding coordinator or the pastor didn't plan properly for the wine. They don't have enough wine. And it's, it's her day. It's her celebration. Actually, in their culture, this feast would have probably extended several days. Um, and there's a lot of things to be understood from this story. But I just want to communicate one of them that I think will help you know Jesus better and also help you uh, understand what his kind of overarching, eternal, long-range plans are a little bit more intimately, make them a little bit more tangible. So, so get this, uh, there's a bride in this story who has really high hopes for this day. No bride ever went into her wedding thinking, yeah, whatever. Uh, this is a big deal for her. This wedding, okay, girls do that. Uh, if you're a dude, you probably don't get it. Um, here's how I know that girls do that. There's a whole genre of television devoted to like wedding planning, wedding cake making, wedding dress, shopping. Like you could literally sit down at your house and just watch TV show after TV show 24-7, 365 days a year. We have this whole genre of television uh, just dedicated to weddings. And uh, a few years ago, I'm going to say my daughter Hannah was maybe eight years old, kind of in that range. Uh, one of these shows was on TV, and Brandy and Hannah were sitting on the couch glued to it. They're dialed in to what's happening. Now, Brandy, I get, because like, you know, she is a bride. She sort of understands what all this is about. Hannah's eight years old. She's obviously aware of the fact that someday she's going to be a bride. Are you aware of that already? Yes, sir. Oh, wow, I got a sir out of that. <laughs> wow, that is literally a first. Who are you? What have you done with my daughter? Uh, and uh, so they're sitting there watching it. And uh, our older son, Micah, who happens to also be sitting right here, he walks into the living room. He stands right from the couch, and he turns toward the TV, and he sees what he's on, and then immediately walks back out the same way that he came in, because he realized, this is not something I want to get tangled up in, because he doesn't understand. But the girls understand. This young lady understands that. This is a big, big deal to her, okay? I, I, I don't get it, because I'm an oblivious guy, but to this young lady, running out of wine is about the same as running out of oxygen in terms of importance to her. So the question I have, as it pertains to this wedding, is why would the Savior of the world decide that he's going to reveal who he is, he's going to reveal himself to be the, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and he's going to initiate his public ministry in such a simple, practical, somewhat unspectacular way? 
uh, with kind of a, it's a public miracle, but only a few people know about it, and it's not like it's world-changing, like these people just have a better beverage. Why would he start his ministry in that way? Uh, I can think of far more spectacular things. And the reason that I would suggest, as I look at the, the overarching narrative of the scripture, is that weddings and marriage, but specifically weddings, are like a faint echo of what God's eternal kingdom will be like for us. Um, it's the closest snapshot that we have. In, uh, in the book of Colossians, um, Paul actually talks about this idea that now in this life, we see the verbiage he uses is a dim reflection, but then when we're in eternity, we'll see clearly. Now for them, uh, he's using the language of like looking in a mirror. Uh, for them, they didn't have crystal clear glass mirrors like we have. What they would have had would be like polished pieces of metal. So you could, you could kind of see, but it's not like you could see your nose hairs in it like we can today. Okay, that's not a problem for you, good. Uh, so he uses this imagery of, you know, now we see a dim reflection, but in eternity we'll see clearly. And throughout scripture, uh, we see the wedding or uh, the perfect uncorrupted union between a husband and a wife. We see that as imagery for what our relationship will be to God in eternity. It really is a beautiful picture. And it makes sense why Jesus would use this to initiate his ministry. The perfect unspoiled union between husband and wife. It's a snapshot of what heaven will be like. So think about it this way. In the beginning, beginning of Genesis, what's the first human interaction we see? It's the union between Adam and Eve, right? Later on, this author, John, uh, John the Beloved, he, he wrote the last five books of the Bible, chronologically the last five. If you're flipping through the Bible, it's the last four books and the Gospel of John, but chronologically, they were the last ones written. Uh, and the Revelation, or the book of Revelation, was actually the very last one. And God gave John a snapshot of what the culmination of human history would be like. Uh, some people deduce all kinds of weird things about it, but he paints a really beautiful picture of what the coming of God's eternal kingdom would be like. And this is what he wrote in Revelation 19, verse 6. He says, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride, the church, has made herself ready. Throughout Scripture, we see us, the church, referred to as the bride of Christ. And at the culmination of human history, God gives John a picture of the church, the bride of Christ, entering into eternal celebration, eternal union with their Savior. So why would Jesus perform his first public miracle by turning water into wine at a wedding? Because heaven's going to be like a wedding party. It's a snapshot that we have, a wedding party where we will be joined together with our Savior forever. We'll be in perfect union, and everything that was wrong will be made right, and old things will pass away, all things will be made new, and there will be no more sin, there will be no more sorrow. Some of the people we love have already beaten us there, but they'll be there too, and heaven will be like the perfect feast with all the people we love on the perfect evening in union with our perfect God forever. What a day that will be. That's good news. I'm excited about that. So here's the big idea that I just want you to, uh, to take away. Jesus' first miracle shows us 
what his eternal kingdom will be like. Jesus' first miracle is a snapshot of what his eternal kingdom will be like, a feast where our perfect heavenly father has met all of our needs and all that has gone wrong has been restored. And we have the opportunity to live in that kingdom forever. In the meantime, as we do this, as we go through life, know that your Savior has made provision for you, that your future is secured, and we're going to do the things that we need to do, and we're going to follow him through this life, but someday, all of that will be left behind. Someday, we will celebrate together. Uh, you won't have to get up on Monday morning. Uh, you, won't, uh, you won't have to do the dirty work of being a parent. You'll just get to celebrate. We won't have to pull weeds. We'll just get to celebrate. I thought that might get an amen. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, in the meantime, I love being part of this family.